Awesome. Well, welcome to our sixth week in a series that we have been calling Grow. And uh, let me just say, of course, that if you are a guest with us this morning, uh, like Clark had mentioned earlier, we are so, so glad that you're with us. We count it an absolute privilege that you would spend Sunday morning with us here. And just to catch you up, uh, kind of up to speed, if you are a guest, is uh, we are kind of going through this series called Grow. And this series, in a nutshell, what it's all about is it's all about spiritual growth. And our hope has really been in this series to kind of add some clarity and to add some practicality to, which is oftentimes sort of a vague and ambiguous topic, this topic of spiritual growth. So we've been talking about that, about the importance of and instructions and how to grow spiritually. If you have been with us, you might remember the way we've been approaching this is we've actually been traveling together through this incredible book, uh, the New Testament book of Colossians. And so week by week, we've been kind of going through that together, uh, talking through this incredible book and, uh, and doing that together. And so like I said, this is our sixth week in this series. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them with me and let's go ahead and go to Colossians chapter three. Okay, so get your Bibles. If you got them, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 3. We'll just jump right into it here. So Colossians 3. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem. We have some Bibles for you in those chairs underneath you or, uh, or in the rack in front of you. And in, that, in those Bibles, page 822 is where you're going to find Colossians. So go ahead and get there if you would. And if you don't have a Bible, just take one of ours. Just go ahead and, and make that a gift from us to you. So get there, however you get there. If you're a smartphone person or if you have a tablet, if you want to access the Bible that way, you can obviously do that as well. So if you do, go ahead and close down your other apps, uh, close, down, uh, close down your email, close down Twitter, Instagram, Pokemon Go, and uh, it's fine. There'll be plenty of time for that later. So let's just dig into this together, Colossians chapter 3. Okay, so I'll also put the verses up on the screen. We're going to be in verses 1 to 17 this morning. So what I'm going to do is let's just go ahead and read the whole passage, read the whole thing. And then we'll kind of come back around and we'll, we'll break it down and unpack it a little bit, okay? So Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, why don't we pray together, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through this together. Oh God, we just want to say thank you so much. Uh, for this incredible passage. 
Honestly, I believe that in this passage, we, we, we find um, the power to truly be transformed, to grow in our spiritual maturity. And so, Lord, I ask you uh, today that these words that we, that we just read wouldn't just be words on a page. I pray that you would help us to internalize uh, what we just read, help us to understand, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we approach this this morning. And uh, we want to ask this in uh, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so th- this is a pretty lengthy passage, 17 verses, and uh, a lot of great stuff in there. And I'm sure as we read through it the first time, for some of you, maybe you kind of glazed through it a little bit. Uh, but, but what we have in this passage, and what I want to kind of unpack for us today, is the Apostle Paul is actually showing us uh, the uh, formula, I guess for lack of a better term, the formula for true spiritual transformation. Or maybe, maybe a better way to put it would be this, that in this passage, the Apostle Paul is showing us the sequence in which spiritual transformation takes place, the only sequence in which true spiritual transformation takes place. Now, what am I talking about? Well, let me just try to sum it up as, as briefly as possible and sort of show you what this formula is. So if you go to this next slide, I'll just kind of show you. This is basically what the Apostle Paul is telling us. He says this. He says that who I am is going to transform how I think, and how I think, in turn, is going to transform what I do, Okay. And and the Apostle Paul says, this is the formula, or this is the sequence in which true spiritual transformation takes place. And there is no other sequence besides this. Okay, so again, it's who I am. It's an issue of identity. It's an issue of what I believe about myself, about who I believe that God says I am. He says, who I am is going to work itself and transform how I think, okay? How I think, my mental processes, my thought life. And that, in turn, is now going to affect what I do. And the Apostle Paul says, this is how true spiritual growth and true spiritual transformation happens. There is no other way that true spiritual growth and true spiritual transformation happens aside from this sequence. Who I am determines how I think, and that, in turn, uh, is going to challenge what and and what I do, okay? Now, now let me just kind of show you how that pans out in this passage. So first and foremost, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul starts this whole passage off by talking about who I am, by talking about this issue of identity. So take a look with me at verse 1 to 4 real quick. Notice he starts off, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, those are some pretty packed verses. There's a lot of information in there. But what I really want to draw your attention to is the first two words of chapter 3. Do you notice what they are? He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Since then you have been raised with Christ. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. So since then, some of you might have um, some different translations, and maybe instead of saying since then, it says if then. I um, just want to let you know that um, all commentators, at least all the commentators that I read on this, they all agree that the truest uh, translation there is the word since. This isn't a conditional word. It's not like, well, you know, maybe one day if you're raised with Christ. It's not saying, hey, if you work really hard, then maybe one day you can achieve this status of being raised with Christ. That's not what the Apostle Paul says. He begins by saying, since then, this is an established fact about who you are if you are a person, a person who has embraced Jesus Christ. And what is this showing us? Here's what it's showing us. Everything that the Apostle Paul is going to tell us after this is all founded on this principle of, of an identity 
that has already been established about those of us who follow Jesus, okay? Put it another way. The Christian life begins here. It begins with who you are. And everything is going to flow out of this new identity. And the rest of our Christian lives is, is those of us who follow Jesus, is us trying to live up to the identity that is already ours, okay? Now, I know that might sound kind of abstract, and so let me see if I can put a little flesh on that uh, by illustrating it a little bit. So um, March 24th, 2007, was a monumental day for me, monumental day. On that day, I stood on a stage, much like this one, and I stood in front of a group of people, much like this group, my family and friends. I stood next to a pastor with a bunch of my, with a bunch of my, my buddies, and I watched the most beautiful girl in the world walk down the aisle, right? And she had on a white wedding gown, and it was a moving, incredible moment. And she got up on the platform, and, and of course, you know, if you, guys are, if you guys have been around Grace, Pastor Jeff Bogue is our senior pastor. He's the one that officiated our wedding that day. I don't remember almost anything he said. And uh, I was so nervous and I was so excited and I was just so, you know, I was just so captivated by my bride. And I remember sitting there and Jeff said some stuff. I don't know what he said. He kind of sounded like the teacher from Charlie Brown to me. And, uh, and we, we lit some candles, I think, and there was some music and we, we, we put some rings on. It was awesome. But the one thing I really remember is I remember Pastor Jeff at the end of the ceremony He said, by the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel uh, in the state of Ohio, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And then, of course, my wife and I kissed, and everyone clapped, and it was awesome, and it was exciting, and it was a wonderful thing. And listen, at that moment, at that moment, when Jeff said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, my identity changed. It shifted. There was something that wasn't true about me before that was now true about me right? I was now Jessica's husband. And so my legal status changed, my social status changed, my relational status changed, my Facebook status changed, right? (laughs) All of that changed in that moment. Jessica, in the same way, that very moment when Jeff said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, her status changed. In fact, her last name changed, and everything that went along with my name now went along with her name. Everything that was identified with me was now identified with her. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. That day, when I, when I said I do, and I walked down the aisle, and it was now husband and wife, was I a husband? That's the question. And the answer is, yeah, yeah, kind of, right? Because uh, uh, just admittedly, Uh, I did not know the first thing about what it meant to be a husband and about what it meant to be married. When I walked off that, Jess and I were just talking about this uh, probably last month or something. I remember we were having this conversation. We were looking back at our first year of marriage. And I remember as we were talking about it, I was like, oh my gosh, we didn't know anything about marriage. I was like, I didn't know the first thing about being a husband. And Jess was like, yeah, I noticed, you know? And I was, she didn't say that. She's, she's way too nice. She's like, I didn't know the first thing about being a wife. And I was like, I know. The first year of marriage for us, we used to joke around. It used to feel like we were playing house. I remember, like, we didn't know what we were doing. I remember I'd be like, hey, honey, I'm going to go mow the lawn, you know? <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to do the laundry, you know? We're like, let's have a sleepover. And I don't know why we talked like that. We were newlyweds. So if you're, if you're a newlywed, that's how you talk, apparently. And, uh, and we didn't know the first, I remember we got on the airplane uh, to go to our honeymoon. And I remember I was looking at my ring and I was looking at her ring. And I remember just saying, I was just looking at her and saying, hey, wife. And she's like, hey, husband. And it was just, it, was, it felt like a game to us. It was all new to, because what it was, we were trying to get used to this new identity. 
And so listen, did I, become, did I become a husband that day? Yes, I did. And I am becoming a husband every day. And I can honestly tell you 10 years of marriage, I know so much more about what it means to be a husband. But 30 years from now, I guarantee I'm going to look back at my time right now. I'm going to say, you didn't know the first thing about what it meant to be a husband. Now, if you can imagine that illustration for a minute, that's actually a really good picture of what the Christian life is. The Bible says that for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, which again, I know not everyone in this room has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are still investigating Jesus. Hey, and if that's the case, can I just say, we say this all the time, we count it an honor and a privilege that you would allow us to be part of that investigation. So thank you for that. But if you're a person who is investigating Jesus right now, or if you're a person who has embraced Jesus, you've put your faith in Christ, you've accepted him, the Bible says the moment you do that, the moment that you embrace Christ in faith, there is an identity shift that has taken place. There is something that is true about you now that was not true about you before. You are viewed differently by God. There is a legal status that has changed in God's eyes. The Bible says in this passage, I don't know if you know this, it says, since you have been raised with Christ. What's that talking about? It's talking about the future hope that we have in Christ. It is so secure for us. It is so promised to us. There is nothing that can take it away, that it is a reality that should inform every day for us. The Bible says in this passage that we've been raised with Christ, that everything that goes along with Jesus and his name is now associated with us. In other passages of the Bible, it puts it this way. It says when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. That means that we have rights and access to God in a unique way, that everything that goes along with him is now ours. We inherit everything that belongs to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that is an identity shift that has taken place. So I want you to understand that when the Apostle Paul starts to talk about spiritual transformation, he always starts here. Since then. It's not if maybe you try hard enough. It's not if you work really, really, really hard, then maybe you'll be raised with Christ. No, no, no. He says since then this is true about you because this is your identity. That's how he begins. So he starts off and he says, who I am needs to begin transforming. Here's the second part, how I think. It's got to start transforming how I think. Who I am, what I believe about myself, needs to start transforming how I think. He says it very plainly in verse 2. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. That's who you are. That's right. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is a certain reality for you. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then he says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Some of you might have different translations there. It might say set your affections on things above. Um, in, the, uh, in the Greek language, literally, when it says mind there, it literally means mental disposition. It means exercising of the mind. What's he talking about? Your thought life. He's talking about your mental processes. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, since there is this new identity that has been given to you by God, you are an adopted son, you're an adopted daughter if you've put your faith in Jesus. He says, now you have to work to set your mind on that reality. It should begin to work itself into how you think and how you process the world and the worldview that you have. Just going back real quick to, to, my, to, to my, uh, my, my wedding situation. When I got married to Jessica, it didn't just change my legal status, and it didn't just change my social status. It also changed the way that I thought about everything. 
It changed the way that I interacted with my finances. It changed the way that I thought about my time. It changed the way that I thought about relationships and how I interacted with people socially. It began to change it. This new identity that I took on, I am now Jessica's husband, began to work itself into my thinking into such a way that, I, that it was so ingrained in me that every area of my life, every aspect of my thought processes were affected now by this new identity of who I was. And so the Apostle Paul says, here's how it happens. It begins with who you are, and that needs to work itself out in how you think. And then, third, and by the way, last, this is always last, he says that in turn is going to affect what I do. It's going to affect what I do. Now, I want you to notice again, the Apostle Paul says this is the sequence. This is the formula. Who I am, it's going to transform how I think. And then last, 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 it's going to show up and it's going to bear fruit in my life in what I do. And this is where you get verse 5 to verse 14. So let's read verse 5 to 14 again. So then the Apostle Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, all right, so let me just pause there for a minute because some of you might be thinking, what exactly is that? What is sexual immorality? So let me just be super clear here, by the way. I just want you to know that, um, that, that God um, is not anti-sex. I think that's an important thing to say. God loves sex. God made sex. He's the designer and the creator of it, which says something awesome about God. And so the Bible loves sex. Uh, God loves sex. And because of that, we at the Medina East Campus, we love sex. It's a wonderful thing, Okay. <laughs> And we, we, we're not afraid to talk about it because we think it's an awesome thing that God made. What is sexual immorality then? Well, sexual immorality is basically any type of sexual gratification that is, that is found outside of the context in which God has designed sex to be made within, okay? And what is that context? Well, many of you know this. The context that God created sex was for a marriage relationship, a committed monogamous relationship between one man and one woman till death do them part. That is God's design for sexuality. So what is sexual immorality then? Well, that could be a litany of things. It's sex outside of that context in any way. So this could be extramarital sex, this could be premarital sex, this could be fantasy sex, things like pornography or fantasy novels that engage someone that is not your spouse. Okay, that is all sexual immorality, all right? And, and so he, here he says in this passage, he says, because of who you are and because of how you think, you need to now put to death sexual immorality, notice, impurity, Lust, which we all know what lust is, right? Lusting is, is craving and desiring that which does not belong to you. Lust in an unhealthy way. And then he says, uh, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as this, anger, rage, malice, some of you might be thinking, what is malice? Malice, by the way, quick definition, it basically is evil intentions. That's what malice is. Malice, he says. Slander. Slander, by the way, is always associated in the Bible with gossip. Slander is the idea of tearing somebody else down, destroying their reputation. That's what slander is. It says, take that off. Filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, here there is no Jew or, or, or Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What's all that about? This barbarian, Scythian, circumcised, what is that all about? Well, what he's referring to there, by the way, is different classifications in society. 
He's talking about racial classifications, ethnic classifications. He's talking about social and economic classifications. And what he's saying is when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that identity is so primary that even uh, other sources of identity, like your ethnicity, uh, like your uh, social or economic status, those are secondary, is what he says, to this one identity that you have in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on, take a look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, what's he doing there? He's reminding us of who we are. Because of who you are, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be bear with each other, forgive each other. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, here's what I want you to catch, okay? In, those, in verse 5 to verse 14 is all about behavior. That's what it's all about. The Apostle Paul says, do this, don't do this, right? He's like, don't do sexual immorality. Take that off, put that off. He says, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. Do these things. Be compassionate, forgive, love, do these things. These are all behavioral terms that that the Apostle Paul is talking about. But I want you to notice is that for the Apostle Paul, these always come last. They don't come first. He says, who I am needs to change how I think. And then that's going to start bearing fruit in my life in what I do, in what I do. That That is the way in which that works. And so if you look at the formula again, who I am determines how I think, and that transforms what I do. Now, Now, most of you might be thinking, okay, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty clean cut. It makes a lot of sense. But here's the problem, okay, because there's a problem. And the problem is this, that for most of us who follow Jesus and for those of us who are investigating Jesus, we operate and we view Christianity as if it is the exact opposite of this. And a lot of times what we do, we operate as if this works backwards. And so let me explain that a little bit. For many of us, this is how, how our Christian life works. We believe that Christianity is about what I do, okay? And it's about how I think. And that what I do and how I think is going to determine my identity, whether I'm accepted by God or not. And so what I do, so what's Christianity? Well, Christianity is, you know, do this and don't do that. God doesn't want me to commit sexual immorality. God doesn't want me to lie or cheat and steal. And so I try to be a good person, and and that's what Christianity is about. So it's about what I do. It's about how I think, right? And so I have a Christian worldview. I have a Christian mentality. I read the Bible. I go to church. It's about what I think. And if I act the right way and I think the right way, then that means that God is going to accept me, right? And, And if I don't act the right way and if I don't think the right way, that means that God is not going to accept me. And I just need to let you know that even though that might seem like a very subtle difference between those things, we are talking about these two things up here are two entirely different things. The top one is true, genuine spiritual transformation. That is Christianity. Who I am is going to change how I think, and that's going to change what I do. The bottom one is religion. And you guys, if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard us say this before. Here's what religion is in a nutshell. Religion is... Um, I have to perform my way to God. And my acceptance by God is directly contingent upon my performance recently. And if I'm doing good and I'm working my way to God, then God is going to accept me. But if I'm messing up and I'm failing, then that means that God is not going to accept me. And these are very, very different and opposite things. One is true Christianity, is true spiritual growth. And the other one is religiosity. It's working my way to God. I feel like I have to gain approval. Now, this is so important. 
This is so important that I need to dig at this a little bit more. So let me just dig at this. How do you know that you have this in the right order? How do you know? Well, let me give you a couple surefire signs, some clear indications that you have this in the wrong order. Okay, one of the ways that you know that you have this in the wrong order is if your Christian life is marked by guilt, shame, obligation, duty, and self-condemnation, drudgery, okay? If that, if that marks your relationship with God, it is a clear sign that you got this backwards. Why is that? Because if you're a person that just, if you're a person that just constantly feels like, man, God must be so disappointed in me, I keep messing up, and, and, and I just I can't seem to get it right, and God just must, he must be so mad at me, he must disapprove of me so much because I'm such a failure. If that's the way you're thinking, it is a clear sign that you are under the impression that your performance is going to somehow affect your acceptance by God, right? And so you're full of guilt, you're full of shame. If you're a person who says to yourself, if you're a person who says, this past week, my performance um, is going to determine my acceptance. And so if you're a person that says, man, this last week, I had a really rough spiritual week. And so I didn't read my Bible very much, I didn't pray, and I got in a fight with my spouse again, and then I yelled at the kids, and then I kicked the dog, and I listened to Nickelback again, and <laughs> I fell back into some of my old addictions. And, and, and let's just say you had a really bad week this week, spiritually speaking. If in your mind you think to yourself, that must mean that God must love me less this week. If, that, if you come into this place feeling like, man, I just feel, I feel guilty. I need, to get to, I need to get to church because I know it's what God wants me to do, but it's like a duty and it's like an obligation. I just kind of have to, it's a, it's a surefire sign. It's a clear indication you got this backwards. Or the opposite, if you had an awesome week spiritually, maybe you're like, this week was awesome, man. I read my Bible. I prayed. I didn't yell at my wife. It was incredible. I, I went through my grow journal. It was awesome, right? I had a great week this week. And you think to yourself, that means that God must love me more. It's a surefire. It's a clear indication you got this backwards. How do you know you got it right? How do you know that you have this the right way? Who I am determines how I think, determines what I do. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how. It's actually in this passage. You can, you can know because your Christian life is marked with thankfulness, not with dread, not with drudgery, but with thankfulness. Let me just show you. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Look at this. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. You notice that three times in three verses. The Apostle Paul says, be thankful. You're thankful. You're overflowing with it. How do you know you got this in the right order? You, you, your Christian life is marked by thankfulness. You're just marked. And why? Because you are certain that what you do does not change who you are. You, you have clear assurance that just because you had a bad week this week or just because you had a good week this week doesn't for a moment change who you are in Christ, doesn't change the identity that Christ has placed on you that your performance isn't contingent upon your acceptance to God. And listen, for some of you this morning, you, you need to hear this. You need to hear this because something inside of you is, con is convinced, even though you might not say it outwardly, there's something inside of you that is convinced that your performance is contingent upon your acceptance by God. I'm just telling you, man, that that is not, this passage tells us, no, that's not how it works. Some of you in this room, maybe this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. 
And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, this whole Jesus thing is really good for all of these nice people here, these, all these people who have their lives together, which, by the way, you, you couldn't be more wrong, okay? You're like, for all these people who have their lives together, that's really good, but I, I am such a mess, so I have to clean myself up first, and then I can come to Jesus. I'm just telling you, you got it wrong. That, that's not how it works. I was reading this story probably about a month ago, one of the most, heart, one of the most heart-wrenching stories I've read in a long time. It was a story that was about, about um, some of the issues that adopted children face once they move into their, um, into their new homes. And uh, just heartbreaking. Some of you know this by experience. Some of you maybe have heard some of these things or have relatives who have been through this. Uh, but, but they were talking, particularly in this article, about adopted uh, children who especially came from very neglectful backgrounds. And so a lot of these kids came from situations where their basic needs weren't met. Things like food and clothing weren't, weren't, weren't a- adequately provided for them. This heartbreaking stuff. And one of the things they were talking about, one of, one of the primary issues that shows up over and over again with kids in these situations is they get in the habit of hiding food. So they'll hoard food. So, so if they go to the cafeteria or something or if they, if they find themselves in a situation where there's food around, they'll, they'll shove it in their pockets. They'll hide it under their pillows. They'll put food in their closets, all those type of things. And they've learned this basically as a, as a defense mechanism, as a survival tool, because they simply just don't have what they need. It's absolutely heart-wrenching. And a lot of times these kids will get adopted into loving homes, but yet the same attitude and the same behavior will persist, and they'll continue hiding food. And I was thinking about, as I was reading this article, and just, just so heartbroken as I was reading this article, I remember thinking to myself, man, what, what would it be like if I adopted one of those kids? And I thought, I, just, I want you to think about this. What would it be like if, just imagine with me that you adopted one of these children, okay? And I want you to imagine that you went before the judge and you went through the whole legal situation. You did all of that. And then you stood before the judge. The judge dropped the gavel and said, this child is now your child. They now bear your name. Everything that's true about you is now true about them. Their identity has changed. They're now your son. They're now your daughter. I want you to imagine you take them home. And obviously there's an adjustment. Let's say after the first week, you go up to the room and you start smelling something. It smells bad. And sure enough, you overturn the bed or you open the closet or you look under their pillow and they're stashing food. They're hiding food. Let me ask you a question. What would you do as a loving parent? How would you respond to your child in that moment? Would you, go, would you, call, would you demand that that child comes in that room and say, come here, get over here. Look at this and point at the food. And would you look at them and say, why would you do something? That's so dumb. Why would you do that? That is so gross. That's a terrible thing. Don't you ever, ever do that again. What are you thinking? Is that what you would do? Not if you love that kid. You wouldn't do that. Would you, would you call that kid into their room and would you try to reason with them about how this logically doesn't make any sense? Is that what you would do? Would you pull them into the room and say, hey, let me just tell you real quick that the 10 reasons why hiding food is unsanitary, all right? And, uh, and listen, rodents can come in here, and it's going to stink, and you could get a, an infection, a bacterial infection. A ba- Is that what you're going to do? No. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you'd probably do, because i tell you what I would do. I would be so heartbroken. I would be devastated to find out that I would be mad. Not at them. Not at them. But at what they went through. I'd be so upset. And I would go to that child. I would wrap my arms around them if they would let me. And I would tell them, man, I know that where you came from, you felt like you used to have to do this. I am so sorry that that happened to you. But then I'd tell them, I'd say, listen, whether you hide food or not, 
It's not gonna change my love for you. I still care for you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And there's nothing that's gonna happen that's gonna change that. But I'd tell him this. I'd say, but listen, but you gotta know, you gotta know something. You have to understand something. That as long as you are my son or you're my daughter and you're under my roof, I'm gonna provide everything that you need. And I would tell him this. Listen, listen. I would say, you don't have to do that here. You maybe at one time you had to do that. You don't have to do that anymore. You see, because adopted parents, what they want more than anything for their children is to believe the identity that has been placed on. That's what they want to know. Hoarding food is not a behavioral issue. It's not. I mean, at the surface it is. It is a belief issue. There is something that someone is telling themselves. There's a mindset that goes along with it that's based on an identity of who that child believes they are, believes that they they are, and that shows up in their behavior and how they act. And listen, in the same way, in the same way, the Apostle Paul says, this is how true spiritual transformation happens. It doesn't start with behavior. Listen, the Christian life is not behavior modification. That's not what it is. It is fundamentally about an identity shift which is to change the way I think and is to change the way that I act, is to change the way I live, is to show up in my life. Because listen, hoarding food is not a behavioral issue, it's an identity issue. And the, the issues that the Apostle Paul let, uh, read in this, issue, in this passage, they are not just sin issues, they are identity issues. Now think about it, just think about it for a minute. Why is it that we struggle with sexual immorality? Why is it that, that so many of us in this room find ourselves struggling with with, uh, with, with sexual immorality in one way or another. Why is it that if you're a person that's dating right now, that you find yourself over and over again sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you love Jesus and you know that it's not right and it pains you? Why is it that you find yourself doing that over and over again? Why is it that maybe for some of you in this room, you have a habitual pornography problem? Why is it that you keep going back to that over and over again? What is that? Why is it that for some of us in this room, we are seeking after extramarital sexual gratification? Why are we doing that? We say, oh, because sex feels good. That's why. No, that's not why. God made sex to feel good. Sex is an awesome thing. He knows that. So why is it that we do that? Well, it's not just a behavioral issue. There is something deeper that goes beyond that. It's a belief issue. There's something that we're telling ourselves that's informing the way that we think that is changing our behavior and showing up in that way. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, let me just give you one example, maybe. I want you to imagine, okay, so maybe right now you're a young girl and you're dating a guy and you love Jesus. You both love Jesus, but you find yourself over and over again going back to the same sexual habits in your relationship. And maybe for you, it just pain, it shames you. you. You come in here and you're like, man, I feel so ashamed. I feel so dirty. I know this isn't what God wants. God must be so upset with me. And so this week, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try really, I'm going to, the inner hero is going to muster up and I'm just going to, I'm going to behave myself really well this week, Right? And you're saying that, but listen, I think that's a good thing, but you have to understand that it's not just a behavioral issue, that there's something that runs deeper than that. There's something you're telling yourself about who you are. And what is that? Well, I don't know. I think you need to ask God, but maybe, maybe it's something like this, because I've seen this before many times. Maybe it goes something like this. Maybe whenever you and your boyfriend are in a situation and things start, start progressing sexually, that you feel inside of you that this is not the right move, but for whatever reason, you continue to move forward. And maybe the reason that you continue to move forward is because you believe that if you don't engage in this act with, with your boyfriend, that somehow you might scare him away or that somehow maybe, maybe you're gonna lose him as a result of this. 
And so for you, maybe when, when you engage this way, it makes you feel accepted, it makes you feel loved, it makes you feel desired, it makes you feel valuable. And so, and so what does that say? Well, there's, there's, something, there's something that you're telling yourself that that's fulfilling. And what is, what is the narrative? What is it that you believe about yourself that, that, that's saying that? Well, here's what you believe about yourself. What you believe about yourself is that you're not acceptable, that you're not valuable, and you're not desired. And so when you engage in sexuality, it's fulfilling something inside of you that only God himself is intended to fill. You see, and so when the Apostle Paul comes in, he says, I want you to take off sexual immorality. Why does he say that? Because he says, listen, remember who you are. You're in Jesus Christ now, and because you're in Jesus Christ, that means you're totally accepted. It means you're completely valuable. It means you're totally desired by God. And so you don't have to do that anymore. Maybe at one time you felt the need, you don't need to do that anymore. You don't have to do that here. And so now you have a power to say no because you can find in Christ what you couldn't find through sexuality. Why is it that we lie? Why do we lie? And there's a lot of different reasons that we lie, but I can tell you why I lie. At least I can be honest about that. Maybe I'm, I'll try to be honest about why I lie. Uh, why do we lie? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why I lie. The reason I lie is because I want to present an edited version to you of myself that is more acceptable than the real thing. That's why I lie. I lie because there's certain things about myself that I don't like and I don't want you to know. And so I'll cover them up or ignore them or mask them. And there's other things about my life that, I'm really, that, I, that I think would impress you. And I want you to be impressed. So I'll exaggerate them or I'll inflate them or stuff like that. That's why I lie. Well, what's the belief system that drives that? What is, there's a belief that drives that. Here's the belief. The belief is that, that my acceptance and my value and my worth is contingent upon your opinion of me. I really desire your approval. I do. It's just true. And that's why I lie sometimes. What is, what is that? that? That is the belief system about my identity. And, and here the Apostle Paul says, listen, you need, you need to put that off. Take that off. Why? Because all of your value, all of your acceptance is found in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself, and it doesn't matter what other people think about you. My, your acceptance is directly contingent upon my son, Jesus Christ. And so you don't have to do that here. You don't have to do that anymore. Listen, why is it that we slander and that we gossip about it? Why do we do this to each other? Why is it that we feel the need to tear each other down? Why is it that sometimes for us, we secretly celebrate the failures of other people? And we might not say that outwardly, but we find out someone failed or we find out someone made a mistake and inwardly we think, yes, but outwardly say, oh, that's terrible. That's awful. That's so bad. You know, you know, then we say this, let's pray for them. Let's, let me text nine people real quick. Tell them about what happened so that we can be praying for them. Why do we do that? Or, or how about this one? Why do, we try, why do we try to disqualify other people's successes? You ever notice how we do this? So we hear someone did something really good. They achieved something really awesome. And so we say, that's great. That's so awesome. But then we say, but, you know, I mean, that's really awesome. But, you know, the family they came from, right? And, you know, if I had the opportunities that they had, if I had the circumstances, then, then you know, but, but it's really great that they, it's really awesome they did that. But, you know, I you know, just want to make sure we, we're kind of, why do we do that to each other? I'll tell you why. The reason we do that is because we believe something. We believe, it, for some reason or another, we need to rationalize. We need to justify ourselves. And for many of us, we believe that how we are justified is basically where we rank on the pecking order. And so if someone fails, that means that we've leveled up one. 
And if someone succeeds, that means we've leveled down one. And so we feel the need to justify ourselves. And here the Apostle Paul says, you don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because of who you are. Remember who you are. You are fully justified in the person of Jesus Christ. Why is it for some of us that we struggle so much with anxiety and worry about the future? That we find ourselves lying in bed constantly trying to figure out, man, what am I going to do? And I'm worried and I'm nervous and I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm nervous. Why do we perpetually do that? Well, 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 there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons might be this. Maybe because somewhere inside of you, you have a belief system about who you are. And what you believe is that you're an orphan. You believe that God has abandoned you, that God does not have your best interest in mind. And so you clamor for control. Because you believe that you are the one who's, who, who can control your own destiny. And listen, here again, once again, God says you don't have to do that here. Because remember who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. That means I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to do these things anymore. So listen, the Apostle Paul says if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to grow into maturation, this is how it happens. It grows by an ever-increasing um, uh, uh, confidence of who Jesus Christ said you are every single day. And as we grow in believing the identity that Jesus has said about us, it changes the way we think, and that begins to change the way we act. But it doesn't work in the opposite order. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's not about do this, don't do that. It includes behavior, but that's not what it's about. And if you try to deal with God in that way, all you're gonna be doing is mowing the weeds, right? Which is what I do every week when I mow my lawn. My lawn is primarily weeds. And those weeds grow up, and, and, and you know, after a week, it's pretty evident. But you know what I do? I go out and I mow my weeds, and my yard looks awesome for a couple days. And then it grows back up again. And, and for, if, we deal with, if all we ever do is deal with Christianity on a behavior level, we're just mowing the weeds. We're never getting down to the real issue, which is, who do I actually think I am? And what do I believe? Do I actually believe what Jesus Christ has said about me? I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do... I just want to close with a couple quick challenges, and, and I want to challenge you this way. As we worship and sing here in a moment, I, I want to really challenge you to pray and to think, to do work with God, okay? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to identify what is the area right now that you are struggling with the most, that you are struggling to believe God in the most? What is the, what is the, the behavior that you find yourself going back to over and over again that's damaging to you, that you know God doesn't want you to do that? What is that? And then here's what I want you to do. Rather than simply asking God to help you stop the behavior, which that's a good thing to pray. That's a great thing to pray. I want you to go deeper than that. And I want you to ask God, God, what is it that I truly believe about myself? And what is it that I truly believe about this thing that I believe it's going to provide for me or that it's going to give me? Would you ask God to reveal that to you? Would you ask God to help you make that connection and then would you ask God to help you to believe who he says that you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, I want to challenge you this way. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you find yourself tempted this week so, for, to sin in some way, before you, before you engage in that sin, of course, I'm going to tell you not to do it. It's probably not a good idea. But listen, even more than that, before you engage in that sin, I want you to pause. And I just want you to ask yourself and to ask God, what is it that I believe that this is going to give me? And what does my identity in Jesus inform me about that? Just ask God in that moment. If you're a person this morning who is, is investigating Jesus, listen, what you need to understand is that Christianity is not a religion. It's not. 
It's just not. It's not you work your way to God. It's not you behave yourself. That's not what it is. It's that Jesus Christ has worked his way to you and that if you embrace him, this new identity is entirely yours. And maybe you've never done that before and maybe today is the day that you're like, man, today's the day I wanna give my life to Christ. I wanna embrace, I'm done investigating, I'm ready to commit. And if that's the situation, I would encourage you in this time to pray right to God, just directly to God. There's no magic words, there's nothing like that. And just tell him, I wanna embrace you. I, wanna, I want to take this identity on myself that you've offered me. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thanks for uh, your word to us this morning. It's, um, it's powerful stuff. Colossians 3 is powerful stuff. And God, the truth is that, um, that who we are, it, it does transform the way we think and it does work its way out into our life. And, uh, and God, uh, forgive us for the times that we simply deal with uh, our faith on a behavioral level. Of course, it includes all of that, but it's deeper than that. And so I pray... Lord, that you would help us, Lord. Give us uh, discernment and insight. Pray that you would even reveal to us the places in our heart, God, uh, that, we are, um, that we are not believing the truth about what you said about us for those of us who follow you. Uh, God, for the person who's not following you right now is investigating you, I ask that you would work in their heart in a supernatural way. God, draw them to yourself. I pray that for some, maybe today the investigation stops. The commitment begins. The relationship begins. That today they would say, I do, to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we, we lift these things up and we ask it in Christ's name.